That's a fun way to start the day, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it should be. It's awesome. Thank you, David and the crew. Um, what a blessing it is to, to have you leading us. Um, man, so blessed. Uh, our, our staff, uh, your staff, not our staff, your staff, uh, spent this last week, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, together, away uh, on retreat together. Um, just talking, discussing, plotting, planning what, what God would, would have us do, uh, what, what he has done, what, what, what things we see, and, and where he has us going. And so just want to let you know that we spent this last weekend uh, doing that together. Uh, also let you know that, that I've been called away to a retreat this week. I'm, I'm going to a, a little mini pastor's retreat. There'll be about 17 of us there. Uh, our good friend, Gary Johnson, is kind of directing this little retreat, and, and we're going to be working on some sermon planning and some strategies for this new year. And so if you would on Tuesday night, not that there's anything else going on on Tuesday night, but if you would, while you're up late anyway on Tuesday night, some of you, uh, if you could be, be praying for all the pastors that are there in the churches that they all lead and, and uh, God's guidance, you know, throughout that, that time, we would really, really, really appreciate that, okay? So uh, that's on, on Tuesday night. Our theme verse, does anyone remember it? Does anyone remember 2 Corinthians 9.15? What is it? Thanks. Okay. Thanks be to God for his immeasurable is there, but I, 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 uh, it depends on the translation. I've just come to prefer the word indescribable because we still, we don't have very many things in this world anymore. They're immeasurable. Do we like, we can kind of even estimate, we can through algorithms, we can kind of figure out the size, the scope about anything, but there are still things on this planet that are indescribable. That words just can't get the point across. And so we were actually talking about this. I think I was in, in uh, Ken's office, and we were talking about that because uh, the translation that he had up on the wall. And so thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Here's something you might not have thought about. One of the things, one of the gifts that God has given us in this country is that of freedom. Have you considered that what will take place in two days is a gift of God? <laughs> Have you thought about that? It's a gift of God that has been fought for. It's a gift that has, people have sacrificed their lives for. Now, many people believe, of course, that you should never discuss politics in the church. Some people even claim it's in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. We have to have this separation of church and state. Um, that's wrong, the second part. The first part is, is also incorrect. I think maybe there's a degree that we shouldn't get political in church, but here's what we should do. We should preach the good news of Jesus, and we should preach how this great, incredible, amazing, outstanding news affects politics, government, society, on and on the list goes. You see, it comes back to this Christian worldview, the one that we spoke briefly of last week. The more you and I study the words of Jesus, the more we study the teachings of Jesus, the more we understand the love of Jesus, the more you and I are called to think like him, to love like him, to act like him, to be like him in every area of our life. And that includes when it comes to voting. <laughs> you see, here's the problem though. There's a big problem when it comes to voting because when we vote, we're voting for another human being. And that means that they're flawed. Shocking, I know. They're a sinner, just like me, and just like you. There is no perfect candidate. There is no righteous candidate, not one. So what on earth are we to do? Are we as Christians to just ignore the process, to not play a role at all? 
I believe quite actually the opposite of that is true. You see, God has placed you in this world, in this country, in this town, in this community for this moment in history. And as a believer, we are called to spread his love and his goodwill and his thoughts and his teachings across this world however we possibly can. And one way that we can help influence those around us is by doing our homework and finding out which candidates align most closely with the teachings and the ways of Jesus. And by the way, if you do your research and you're not convinced that any of them align with, well enough with the teachings of the Jesus, maybe, just maybe, God's calling you to do something else. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Here's the one thing we cannot do. We cannot separate our faith from our voting. Just like we cannot separate our faith from our job, we cannot separate our faith from our family, we cannot separate our faith from our lifestyle. If you and I are genuine followers of Jesus, then we have to put him first in everything we do. Now, I have heard countless politicians, teachers, professionals proudly say that they will not allow their faith to influence how they govern, how they make laws, how they run their business. I'm here to tell you right now, if that's the case, they're not a person of faith. You can't be. And Jesus is to be our guide in everything we do, including how we vote. That's all I have to say about Tuesday. Let's pray. Father God, as we dive deeply into your word this morning and talk about a very, very, very personal issue, I pray that your spirit is the only thing that people pay attention to. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gifts you've given us, including the freedom of being in the place that we are and if we've never recognized the reality that you have placed us in this societal moment to have an impact for you, I pray that in everybody's minds, their self-worth was just elevated. They, they realize how important they are to your plan for this community. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Proverbs, we're going to be all over the place today, so if you want to skip around, grab your Bible. If you get the phone, maybe you can scroll through real fast, um, go right ahead, or if you just want to follow on the screen, I get it. I understand completely. We're starting off in, in the book of Proverbs, but it's just one verse, 1434. It simply says this, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace, or some versions say condemns any people. Here we are on the eve of yet another election, and we are in this outrageous series. Today, the series takes a turn toward the evil of sin, <laughs> not politics. I thought you maybe thought it was going there. No, 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 no. In the world today, some people honestly with a genuine straight face will ask the question, what is sin? So simply define that Greek word sin. It, it, it's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. But in our context, it goes much deeper than just missing a mark. There's more to it. First John, John, the disciple of Jesus, Jesus' best friend, First John 3, 4 wrote this, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. To break God's law is sin. First John 5, 17, all wrongdoing is sin. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote these difficult words to swallow if you're a true follower of Jesus, James 4, 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, it is a sin. 
for them. That's a tough one. The Zondervan Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words. What a great sounding book, right? I'm sure you've all read it. Um, Defines sin this way. Sin is not only missing God's mark, it is an inner reality, a warp in human nature, and a malignant power that holds each individual in an unbreakable grip. That's pretty deep. The verse we just, just read, righteousness exalts a nation. Whose righteousness are we talking about? Whose righteousness is the author speaking of? Is it man's righteousness? Well, no, because there's no such thing. Paul writes, Romans 3, 9 through 11, what shall we conclude then? Have we any advantage? Not at all, for we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under the power of sin as it is written. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Our personal righteousness or even our national righteousness is only possible in one way. Romans 3.21, but apart from the law of apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference then between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Righteousness available to all, but most have chosen evil instead. How? How do we pursue evil? Well, we live lives filled with sin, outrageous sin. I'm a pastor. How, how can you call what people do, what people say, how people act, or how they live sinful? How can I label a choice, a lifestyle choice as sinful? What gives me the right to say that a political or social stance is sinful or evil? Now, those are great questions. Those are awesome questions. But I've got to tell you, there's a fundamental flaw to every single one of them. You see, you and I are completely right when we say that we don't have the right. We don't have the power. We don't have the authority to declare that something is sinful. No. That authority completely belongs to our God. He alone has set those boundaries for humanity. And those boundaries are absolute guidelines. We cannot change them, period. No matter how we feel or who we might know that is struggling with fill-in-the-blank sin, sin is still sin. If it was sin, it is sin, it will always be sin, as defined by God alone. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And can I just pause there and tell you how freeing that is? You never have to figure out where God stands on an issue. He's crystal clear, and he'll never change his mind. So his view of sin has not, will not, cannot, in fact, change Unfortunately, we live in a world, more specifically a country, that uh, has begun to embrace sin fully. And not only that, but now has begun to call sin good, which Scripture, of course, warned us that it would. The embrace of sin has disgraced our nation. It has, in fact, condemned our nation. Oh, not by the world. No, no, no. The world loves our sin, Absolutely. 
What's really interesting is it's hard to determine at this point. Are we influencing the world negatively or is the world influencing us negatively or does it really even matter because we're all headed the wrong direction, aren't we? Two weeks ago, we discussed our passion for Jesus and what it meant to be fully connected to the vine of Christ and how we must live out our faith in this world. This means exposing things like sin and sharing the love and truth of Jesus side by side as we do so. As we see all around us, when we do that, though, the world will, of course, hate us. Just a reminder, we've mentioned this verse, we'll mention it many times, I'm sure, into the future. The words of Jesus, John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, well, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember, remember what I told you, a servant isn't greater than his master, If they persecuted me, well, they're going to persecute you also. If they obeyed my teachings, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I hadn't come and spoken to them, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But as it is, they have seen And yet they hated both me and my father. But this is just to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Why? Why does the world hate us? Why is sin such an outrageous offense to God? I'm going to say this again. Sin is an outrageous offense to God. I think we've lost that in our country. I don't think we believe that our sin, I'm talking us, not others, our sin is an outrageous offense to God. We must be reminded of that. How have we gotten here? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but our current age, as you know, is an age of the word tolerance. A man named Bill Mullenberg in his blog, Culture Watch, it's an interesting site. Wouldn't agree with everything he says at all, trust me, but it's an interesting site. Tolerance is all the rage these days. Perhaps no other value is so trumpeted in modern Western culture as this one. This is the ultimate test as to whether one is politically correct or not. But the modern notion of tolerance is devastatingly false. Unlike the original understanding of the term, which we were expected to put up with those we strongly disagreed to tolerate, you know that word, now the word has come to mean something completely different. Of course, now today, tolerate means to accept, embrace, endorse ideas, beliefs, worldviews, ideologies, practices, behaviors, and actions of others, no matter how repulsive or I would use the word sinful, they truly are. Someone else said, the kind of behavior that once brought disgrace now brings a book series, a movie, or a television show. As a society, we have lost the ability to blush or to view our actions as sinful. Sadly, many professed Christians have embraced this idea of tolerance. And as a result, they've lost sight of the outrageousness of sin. Many professing Christians and church members have never truly come to grips with sin, what it is or how God sees it. To a degree, all of our churches are full of people who confess to be followers of Christ, to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, who clearly don't live faithfully for Him. Their lives have remained the exact same since their profession of faith, with the exception that now they identify as a Christian because they're members of a church. We need to understand that sin should be as offensive to the dedicated believer as an insult to the Savior, and that sin invites the wrath of God upon us. 
sin offends the dedicated believer. As a devoted follower of Jesus, is sin offensive to you? Are you able to just look past it? Are you able to ignore it? Right now in some of your minds, there's a list of sins running through your mind. Are you right now trying to justify the one that you're participating in? Think about it. Worse yet, do you embrace those sinful activities? You see, all of those attitudes towards sin are actually sinful in and of themselves for a devoted follower of Jesus. Chris and I got to discuss that idea of a devoted follower of Jesus in the, the course that we led this last fall. What's the difference? What's the difference between a true believer of Jesus and a devoted follower of Jesus? Now, in reality, there should be nothing. They're one and the same. If you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a.k.a. a Christian, then you must be a devoted follower of Jesus. His ways should, becoming your, should be becoming your ways. We should follow his teachings. We should live our lives. They should begin to reflect his life. His love should be the love that we offer to other people. And oh, by the way, his disdain for sin, we, we should feel the same towards sin. Proverbs 29, 27, the righteous detest the dishonest. The wicked detests the upright. The New American says it this way, an unjust person is an abomination to the righteous. Why, yikes, I thought we were supposed to love them. We are. But an unjust person, is it outrageous that they are unjust to you? You see, the apostle John wrote the words of Jesus, quoting Jesus, Revelation 2.2. Jesus is talking to the church's bride in Ephesus, and he says these words, I know your works, I know your labor, your patience, and I know that that church cannot bear those who are evil. The Amplified Version says, cannot tolerate evil. Thought that was relevant since tolerance was a topic for today. But the reality that we live in today is even the so-called bride of Christ has not just come to tolerate evil, but come to embrace it and rewrite doctrine, rewrite scripture so that evil fits within their context. What would Jesus' letter look like to that church, I wonder? There's an old story about a man. It's a fictitious story. There's an old story about a man who walked around the city of Sodom trying to warn its citizens to save them from destruction, but the people all ignored him. One day someone asked, why bother anyone? You can't change them. He said, you know, maybe I can't, the man replied, but I'm still going to shout and scream to prevent them from changing me. There's a powerful lesson in that illustration. You and I can't sit idly by and watch evil invade the lives of those that we love. We cannot allow sin to become the norm. We must share the truth in love. In the book of Genesis, there's a, a man named Lot. We're not going to go into his whole story or even the whole scene. But he was the nephew of Abraham, the great Abraham, the, the very beginning of this Jewish faith, Abraham. Peter calls us, or tells us that Lot was a righteous man, 2 Peter 2.7. And that man should have been doing some screaming around the city of Sodom. The record of his life reminds us that our sense of moral outrage or offense can be dulled by the world around us. You see, Lot chose to dwell in cities where there was incredible Wickedness, you can read about them in Genesis 13. 
And the last chapter of Lot's story, Genesis 19, is a horrible end. Heartache and shame. Quite the contrast to his uncle, Abraham. Uncle who trusted God, prayed for the righteous, lived a a moral life. Was he perfect? No, 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 not at all. But Lot Lot was oppressed with the filthy sin, the conduct of the wicked all around him, Peter tells us. And although the sin of his day bothered him, he apparently didn't really say much about it, and he was willing to look the other way. And as a result, he set a really bad example for his children. After they fled that city and he lost his wife because she didn't follow the directions given to them by an angel, it wasn't long after where his daughters decided to commit a horrific, sinful act with their father. And their sin, because he never stood up against sin in his life, they chose to commit this sin in their life, and it led to the development of two of Israel's greatest enemies. The Ammonites, who we talked about last week, were a direct result of this sinful act that Lot never taught his kids were wrong. (laughs) Yes, parents, we can have a huge influence. These two people groups, the Ammonites and the Moabites, helped lead the opposition against the Israelites as they tried to enter the promised land after their escape from Egypt, all because Lot didn't do what he should have. Living in the presence of sin, and I don't think any of us can deny that we live in the presence of sin, it's all around us. We can become desensitized to it, and we all, every one of us, have. Sinful things that our parents and our grandparents and beyond would have never even imagined, let alone discussed openly, are now fully embraced by every part of our everyday life. And many of us don't even notice that those things are there. It's an old saying, fertilized field smells awful to someone from the city, but the farmer hardly even notices the odor. (laughs) That is not how God asks us to look at sin. Paul writes in Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil. That's a pretty meaningful word, abhor what is evil. There's a story of a man who sold his house for very, very little. It was an incredible bargain with just one stipend that he could maintain just one nail in one door frame in that house. After several years, he wanted the house back, but the now owners would not sell it to him. So he took his ownership of that nail very seriously. He went and found the carcass of a dead animal, and he hung it on that nail in that house. Soon the house became completely unlivable, and the family was forced to sell it back to the original owner of the nail. See, if you and I leave just one small sin in our life, Satan will come right on in, invite himself in, and he'll bring a corpse with him to mess up your life. Lot did not oppose the sin that was all around him or even in his own personal life. And as a result, he helped create part of the force that would ultimately fight against the Hebrew nation as they came to the land that God had promised them. There's an old anonymous quote about sin. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you there longer than you want to stay, and it will always cost you more than you wanted to pay who's been there, right? That is why God routinely and consistently warns us so strong against it. That's why he tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Reject every form of evil. Some evil is not okay. And so many Christians believe it's okay. It's okay to allow a little evil into your life. It's okay as long as it's not that bad. 
Where does it say that? <laughs> David writes in Psalm 1013, think about if you know David's story, what he went through, the sin that he committed in his life. This is after that. This is reflecting on those sins. He says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Why does he say before his eyes? Because he put wicked things before his eyes and he felt guilty to sin because of it. That's why he writes it this way. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. So we wonder, we ask God, why? Why do I keep on sinning? This is a personal message this morning. Why do I keep on sinning? Is it because we are unwilling to fully reject sin? Because we're unwilling to believe in our hearts that sin is actually evil. Is it because we keep putting wicked things right in front of our faces? We bring them into our houses. We have monthly subscriptions inviting evil right onto our TV, right in front of our faces every day. And we pay for it on purpose. <laughs> and we wonder, why am I drawn to sin? <laughs> Hard to figure that one out, isn't it? You see, we never sin for free. There's always a cost. And counting that cost, knowing, understanding that cost can hopefully make us less willing to follow our tempted hearts into those spiritually dangerous places. We're going to finish today by looking at some religious writings that I'm sure you're all familiar with from the mid-17th century. I know a lot of you spend a lot of time reading that, I'm sure. But what these writings do is they remind us, the believer, and if you're not a believer yet, it reminds the pre-believer that there's a cost to our sin. There is a price that we pay for our sin. There's six points to this. I'm going to read all six and then we'll break them down individually. By our sin, we first greatly offend God. That's number one. Number two, we deserve the sentence of death. By our sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. By our sin, we suspend the exercise of faith. We severely wound the conscience, and sometimes by our sin, we even lose awareness of the grace of God for at least a time period. Now, that list is not make, to make you feel worse about what you have done or are doing. Instead, consider it a roadside, a map, a danger beware. Hey, stop! dead end, roadblock ahead, whatever you want the sign to be, because every one of us face temptations. They are all around us all the time. And reminding ourselves of the cost of sin can help, help keep our souls from wandering away from that path that God wants us to be on, that God has created for us. We'll spend a lot of time on the first point, just a little on the other five. By our sin, we greatly offend God. You see, God is able to be offended, if you didn't know that. He can handle it. That's not it. But we must understand is God isn't indifferent toward our sin. He doesn't oversee the world like a bored, disinterested manager. As a father to his children, he's invested in me. He's invested in you. And he cares deeply about how you live your life. We never sin for free. There's always a cost. And God's interests matter to his beloved children. There was a man in the Old Testament named Joseph. God had chosen him to do this incredible work. I can't wait till one day we study the life of Joseph together because I love the story of Joseph. God chose him for this incredible work, one that he could not have ever predicted. No one could have ever imagined that this would happen and God would use him in this way. As ultimately, Joseph would save his people from starvation. But beyond that, he would actually save a lot of the known world 
from starvation, all used by God. But before all of that could happen, Joseph was tempted, and it wasn't just some little bitty old temptation. This was the big granddaddy temptation of all temptations. But Joseph's conviction and his belief in his God allowed him to fight off that temptation to sleep with another man's beautiful wife. He said, and I quote, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Faithful children will zealously resist offending their loving father. When we sin as, we, as believers, we're, we're not taking seriously enough what Jesus Christ did for us in bearing the punishment for our sin. When we tolerate or we approve sin, what are we saying to Jesus? He died so that that sin could be forgiven. He died a horrific death so that you and I would be disgusted by even the thought of sin. When we are continually in sin, we're at least acting like we're indifferent toward the sacrifice Jesus made. And beyond that, we're completely indifferent toward living the holy, separated life that God has pulled us from that past. If we refuse to give up our sin or we affirm lives of sin in others, aren't we telling Jesus that, hey, Jesus, yeah, I love you, but I really love this sin more than you John MacArthur says this, a proper love for God necessarily involves a hatred for sin that leads to repentance. He says that should be obvious. Who wouldn't understand that? If we truly love someone, then we seek their best interest. And God truly loves us and seeks our best interest. Their well-being is our greatest concern. For example, if a man says to his wife, I love you, but I don't care what happens to you you would probably rightly question that husband's love for his wife, would you not? You see, because true love seeks the highest good of its object. God's true love for us seeks our highest good. He desires to prevent us from sinning, from evil, from the pain and the suffering that goes along with that sin. If we love God, we will keep his commands. That would be Jesus, John 14, 15. If we are truly Jesus' disciples, then we will hold true to his teachings, Jesus, John 8, 31. If we are truly his disciples, we will know the truth, and we will allow the truth to set us free, and I think I can finish the sentence this way, from our sin. (laughs) Because that's truly what his truth sets us free from, is sin (laughs) and death and punishment. Abba pastor, I know the truth. I love Jesus. I try really hard not to sin, but I fail. Mm -hmm. So do I. (laughs) We all do. The question is, what do we do with that failure? Does that failure change our opinion of sin? Is it now just, "Eh, it's okay. God will forgive me anyway, because I committed that sin. Or do we come before the Father with a broken and contrite spirit? Those are the words of David, Psalm 51, 17. What do they mean? A contrite heart or a contrite spirit means that a person, a man's inner being is so broken that they're no longer going to run after the things that they want, but instead are going to surrender to the things that God wants. A broken heart or a broken will says, I am no longer trying to do this my way on my terms. I am willing to surrender 
to your ways. You see, if we believe that our sin is as outrageous as God does, then that's how we'll approach him when we ask for forgiveness. A Puritan pastor from the 1600s named Thomas Watson said it this way, the sins of the godly are worse than others. Oh, whoa, I thought they were forgiven. (laughs) Because they bring a greater reproach upon religion. For the wicked to sin, there is no other expected from them. Swine will wallow in the mire. But when the sheep do so, when the godly sin, that redounds to dishonor the gospel. By this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. (laughs) This just might be one of the many, many reasons that the world has grown to hate religion. You see, because if believers practice true religion, which goes beyond just caring for widows and orphans, that's defined as pure and true religion. That's a great start, but there's more to it than just that. If believers practice true religion, which is the worship and the service of our God with a commitment and a devotion to his teachings and to becoming more like him, then what would there be to hate other than the fact that they just hate Jesus? I'll sum it up this way. That whole point could be summarized this way. You'd probably say, Pastor, why you can just say that? God hates sin, so should we. It's true. (laughs) Number two, by our sin, we deserve the sentence of death. I read it earlier, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. It's a good reminder for us. When we sin, we earn death, period. That's really all we need to know. When we sin, we become painfully aware of God's verdict. Paul's actual sin was a painful reminder to him throughout his life that he lived in a body of death, Romans 7. Paul admits he should be on the death row, waiting to be executed for the crimes that he had committed against God. But but God's grace overcomes and overwhelms. It frees us from our sin in our lives. That sin should then remind us, make us more aware of the misery and the desperate need for rescuing mercy. That third point, by our sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, and God abhors sin, outrageous sin. He despises sin. Therefore, the Spirit is much more sensitive to sin than you or I. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul gives us the same instructions on how to live, some instructions on how to live, and he warns us. He warns us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And in that chapter, he lists a list of sins. Now, you or I might look at that list and say, you know what? Yeah, those are sins, but those aren't that bad. I mean, those aren't like the worst sins, right? There's really no difference, but that's a whole other story. They're sins of speech. They're sins of emotion. They're sins of bitterness and, and anger and slander. But it reminds us, because of the Spirit's purity, and even that we might even consider that to be a small sin, that's terribly bad, and the result of that, even that small sin, is that it grieves the Holy Spirit. Why? Because your body, when you come to Christ now, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of you, and that sin pollutes your body. And what is the Spirit's, one of the Spirit's jobs within your body? To purify you of all sin. And you keep putting more in. It is greatly offended by that. The Spirit is working to save you, and you're fighting Against that spirit within, you grieve the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago, the same passage came up, 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. 
and do not live out the truth. There can be no appearance of evil, none at all. Number four, by our sin, we suspend the exercise of faith. Who hasn't seen this play out in people's lives? You know someone, you know something they've done, and what's the first place they disappear from? Church. We suspend the exercise of faith. We go into hiding. Jesus said to his disciples, his disciples had been like, Jesus, come on now. What's good? God, you, you don't even care about us. Jesus' response in Mark 4 was, uh, have you still no faith? Now, he wasn't questioning their salvation, not at all, or that they were with him. What he was talking to them about was their faith. It had become crippled. They'd stopped believing for a moment. It was paralyzed. It was, it was impotent. It wasn't functioning because of what they were going through. You see, sin doesn't necessarily destroy the faith of God's people, but it can. And even if it doesn't destroy us, it absolutely makes our faith weak. It leaves us feeling like we can no longer trust God. He's not there for us, as if he can no longer be there with us. And it will definitely ruin our ability for others to see our faith in Jesus in our lives if we go there, which leads right into number five. By our sin, we severely wound our own conscience. Peter is the perfect example of that. After he had sinned against Jesus, we see his conscience convicting him of denying Jesus as he weeps, destroyed as a man. Even though Paul had persecuted the church prior to being born again, he was permanently scarred because of his terrible crimes against God. God had forgiven him, but Paul, ugh. You see, sin can be and will be forgiven when you ask in faith. But sin isn't always easy to forget, is it? Our troubled conscience can be a gift of God that lead us to repentance. It convicts us of our sin. But sin can also dull our conscience, making us less receptive to the Spirit's conviction. It's often said, and I believe probably true, the hardest person to forgive is yourself because we know what we've done. So we have to move to a place where we allow God's forgiveness to fully reign in our lives, and we must forgive ourselves just as Christ Jesus forgives us. And finally, number six, by our sin, we sometimes lose awareness of grace. We don't lose grace. Grace isn't less extended to us, but you and I lose the ability to understand, to experience, to feel that grace because we're caught up in sin. Deliberate sin is a conscious rejection of grace. We should not be surprised when sin leaves a person lost in fear, in doubt of God, feeling like they've been cast away by the holy God. Jonah in the Old Testament is the perfect model of this. He literally ran away from God. He refused to do what God had asked him to do. He sinned against God. And when God punished him because of his sin, Jonah said, I have been cast out of your sight. That was not true, but that's what Jonah felt like. He tried to flee from the presence of God, to run away. He was so bent on disobeying God that he wanted God to just let him go. He thought God would just let him go. But after that rebellion had kind of worn off, he panicked. He thought that God no longer cared about him at all, but that wasn't true. It felt like it, though. 
It felt like it because of the sin. It was harder for him to sense the presence of God when he's surrounded by that cloud of sin and shame around him. But in reality, and I quote, that surrounding of God, that presence of God can pierce through that darkness with the light of a thousand suns. We just have to open our eyes to see it. Don't forget, all sin brings pain. You might think that whatever you're involved in only affects you. It does not. It first and foremost grieves God. If you're a follower of Christ, it grieves the Holy Spirit within you. So there's three right there that are already in pain because of our sin, not to mention those around us that might be watching. That pain affects us, affects those around us. Permitting sin in our lives allows pain to come to others as well. Justifying sin might remove a label in your mind. Oh, that's not really that sinful, but it doesn't change it in the eyes of God. And the punishment will still remain the same, whether you or I think it's sin or not. Still, sin does not have to keep us from God. The apostle Peter might be the best example of this because he could not have imagined a worse sin than what he committed against Jesus as he passionately, persistently, continually denied his dear friend and his savior. So if sin could disqualify a believer completely, a child of God, then Peter would have been on the outside looking in the rest of his life, but he wasn't. Why? Well, first of all, because Peter owned his sin. It messed him up big time, and he repented. Jesus restored then Peter into his service. So when you and I start reaping the effects of the sin that we have sown in our lives, remember that God is merciful. Own our sin. Repent to our God. He is merciful. He will forgive you. Recommit to walking his path, believing that he will absolutely, totally, and completely forgive you because he will. But it's important for us to remember there is a cost to sin, and those costs go even beyond us, and that's why we listed those today. As I was done preparing this, another passage of Paul's came across my, my eyes and I need lots of light to be able to see it. <laughs> Chapter 6, verse 10 of Romans, sorry, verse 12 of Romans. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. I thought that was such a fitting end as a reminder to each and every one of us. Here's the reality. I know, because I go to an independent Christian church, that there won't be a flood of people at the altar. That's life. But I also know that every single one of us sitting in this room, every single one of us watching online are sinners, saved by grace. And every single one of us have an unconfessed sin before our God right now that he asks us to bring to him. And so whether you do that up here or you do that in your seat, I just ask that you do that, that you remove that barrier between you and God 
today. He wants to forgive you. He longs to forgive you. He died to forgive you. We just must bring it to him. And if you've never come to Jesus before and you never realized that the things you were doing in your life were this egregious to him, they were so offensive to him, today is the day to respond to that and say, Jesus, I want to turn in a new direction. I want to leave that life of sin behind. I need your help to do that. I know I can't do it on my own. Don't think you got to get cleaned up to come to Jesus. No, no, no. Come to Jesus. He then will make you whole. Father God, as we get ready to respond to your spirit's calling, I just pray for the hearts of the people you've given me the blessing to share with. Father, your words are not easy for any of us. You never promised they would be. But your truths are a blessing to us. They are an indescribable gift. The boundary that you've put in place around the human existence, the truth that you've placed out there to help us avoid the pitfalls of this world, the sin that exists in this world, Father, that is strictly there for our benefit. You know the pain. You know the suffering that it will cause in our lives should we choose those paths. So, Father, whether we're on that path right now in the wrong direction and we need a course correction. Father, we need forgiveness of a past sin, something that happened so very long ago, but we've just never fully given it to you. We need that so that we can be set free, truly set free to live for you. I just pray that your spirit moves people to make those decisions today. Father, it's not embarrassing. (laughs) It's nothing but a sign, a, just a purely beautiful picture of how you long to forgive us. You're not angry with us when we come to you. Father, you are overjoyed that we know what we're doing is wrong and that we long to correct it and allow you to help us on that path. Father, we love you. And it's in your Son. In his name, who willingly died for my sins, that these words are devoted to you.